Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. Harry Shearer is an Emmy-winning actor, writer, musician, and political satirist. He is best known for his work on The Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, and films such as This Is Spinal Tap. In 2002, he joined me in studio to talk about making the film Teddy Bear's Picnic. Stay tuned as we go center stage with Harry Shearer, the man of a thousand voices. Center stage, center stage, center, center, center stage. Center stage. Did you really do Abbott and Costello go to Mars? Yes. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, I mean, it's only in retrospect. It was pretty ordinary at the time. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, those are great. It was a. It was an interesting. I, I'm uh, a little prouder of my actually my first movie. That wasn't my first movie. My first movie was The Road. That's right. Yeah, that was. I was the first Cinemascope child. And whatever I remember, that actor, you know, who played the Caesar, and he would always get so. I think he. I think he's on. Uh, he's on a cable show now where. Uh, well, everybody's on a cable. Believe show. it or not, he talks. Believe it. Oh, or is he in the Ripley's Believe It or Not? Yeah, the oh. Ripley's guy, or like Strange Phenomena, something like that. Wow, everybody's. Okay. But no, and Victor Mature, right? Well, Victor, no, Victor Mature is dead, isn't he? No, but no, but I mean, he was in the rope. Yes, right? yes. No, that was a great movie. Yeah, yeah. So, what did you do on that? I was uh, a crippled boy. I was a crippled boy who, uh, uh, a child was given a donkey by Richard Burton, and uh, the child gave me the donkey, and uh, I was kind of miraculously uh, cured of my crippling uh, ailment as a result of the, you know, the gift, the great gift. That's awesome. I'm not, I don't mean to demean the story there, but you know, that's what happened. Basically, I hung around the... I was, uh, I was eight years old. I got to hang around the Fox lot for about two weeks and uh, had... Uh, first time I ate duck at the Fox Commissary. It was like, that's what I remember about the robe was, hey, duck is good. <laughs> Look, I, I want to do another film. So yeah, I so have, I can eat more duck. I want more duck. Yes, let me, let me put it this way. I've never had more fun on the Fox lot since. When you got the uh, the gig on The Simpsons, mm-hmm. I mean, that started with the Tracy Ullman show, right? Uh, the family started on the Tracy Ullman show. I didn't join until it became a series on its own. Uh, it's so funny when you look back at the old the old Simpsons. Oh, they the, look the, like they, they were look, done in the 20s, don't they're they? All, they're all sketchy, you know, the yeah. heads are all weird. And the voices are totally different, and yet it's the same people, but it looks like it's it comes from the 1920s. It's amazing. So how does the voice how does the voice change? Is it just they get more seasoned, or they change the way they record it? Or? No, the, the recording didn't affect it too much. No, I think it's just all of us, because I know I listen to old Simpsons and, and I was doing Mr. Burns differently. I think because we don't sit and listen to the shows week to week as we continue to do them, the voices kind of evolve a little bit and we kind of move in a direction that feels funnier and or more comfortable. One or the other, I think Dan, for example, who Dan Castellaneta, who does Homer, was originally basing it on something else. And so the early Homer, you can hear where it was coming from. Now, Homer is indefinably and unutterably Homer. He's just nothing but Homer. So the the influences have been 
kind of drained away, and now Homer is nothing but Homer. And same with, with like, Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns, I mean, I didn't have kind of the direct references that Dan did. He was doing Eddie Mayhoff and a couple of other old comedians. Um, Burns was just a voice that came into my head, but the more I did him, the more I kind of figured out who he was, and, and so that's been the process. How long do you think it'll run, Simpsons? I don't know. You know, what what, uh, what controls that now is um, whether Fox gets another real hit uh, because the value of, to, to be absolutely brutally honest about it, the value to Fox of The Simpsons now is not, um, oh, it's a great show and people love it. The value of it to Fox is if we have The Simpsons on at 8, we can put some new show on at 8.30 right. and have a prayer that people will come try it. I mean, look at this season, The uh, Chamber. Uh, it, uh, I don't know if you saw The Chamber. No. You heard about The Chamber. Oh, wait, I did see it. I, yeah. I, I could... I, it yeah, was, that was The Chamber. Yeah. So... And, you know, Fox, I mean, they take chances, but when they had the, like, the, the people eating... <laughs> That was, I'm going, TV has hit an all-time Oh, level. the glutton bowl. Yeah, the glutton bowl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. It'll thought, get lower than that. It was either that, and, and I think uh, once it was Barbara Streisand, you know, her, her farewell concert yes. for the 50th time. Yeah. With, open with Xavier Glover. <laughs> I thought that, and then the glutton bowl, the two two worst things Now, see, if they'd done television. that, if they'd combined those two events and had just Barbara Streisand eating... Then that would be now good that TV. Would have been, That's good TV. That, what they should have had is Whoopi Goldberg, Barbara Streisand, and Rosie O'Donnell. Well, if they just cover Whoopi Goldberg with worms, <laughs> you know, then you've got television. Um, but uh, the first week the Chamber was on, it aired in the Simpsons time slot and got a, a big audience. And the second week it was on, it aired after the Simpsons and got a big audience. And the third week it was on, it was on Friday night and tanked and it was canceled. So that's the value of The Simpsons. It can, by its very presence, bring attention to crap shows that, you know, at least get a a, a trial. And that's its value to Fox. So as long as there's nothing else they can put on that will do that for them, uh, I mean, we'll at least be around through another couple of years, I think. Teddy Bear's Picnic. Now, uh, how would you best describe this film? It's, um, um, as a style of film, it's an independent uh, digital comedy. As a subject matter description, it's about a group of the richest, most powerful white men in America who every summer for 100 years have had a secret retreat in Redwood Country, and this summer the secrecy is under threat by... uh, a local news broadcast in San Francisco. Now this is a uh, this is loosely based on a real organization, right? This is tightly based on a real organization. Because <laughs> I like the little disclaimer in the beginning of the film. Yeah. Well, that was we we I put that disclaimer in. It says uh, you know something some reference to our lawyers. Our, th- this was never submitted to lawyers. Uh, it was just there for a laugh. But uh, I had there is in fact such a an organization for real uh, called the Bohemian Grove. And I did uh, a substantial amount of research about it before writing and uh, making this picture. And then after writing the script, I actually got invited, coincidentally, to uh, kind of a little preview weekend. They have the real encampment in the middle of the summer. 
Uh, as Enca- matter- I like that. The encampment. encampment. As a matter of fact, uh, I am told, I'm reliably informed that to this day, on Henry Kissinger's social calendar, there's like a week sort of marked off for a mysterious hospital visit, which in fact covers his, his actual visit to Bohemian Grove. Um, but I got invited to like a preview weekend and got to kind of fact check to see, oh yeah, I got, I got it right. So it's uh, up to the point where the, uh, the place is threatened with exposure. Pretty much what I depict comedically is what really goes on. Well, now I was reading that uh, it started out as a, a way for journalists up in what the Bay Area, yeah, to get together and uh, booze well, it up on a weekend. Yeah, it was journalists. Mark Twain, I think, helped found it. It was writers and artists. It was called the Bohemian Club because they were really Bohemians. They were writers and artists, and they let businessmen in because they realized that businessmen could pony up the bucks to help keep the club alive. And then the businessmen took over and turned the writers and artists into mascots, which is what they are to this day. I mean, one of the things that's goofy about this place, aside from their taste in leisure activities, which basically involves getting drunk and peeing on redwood trees, is that they love being around show people. Although because uh, their membership has never been mistaken for Fairfax Avenue on a Saturday afternoon, they have a limited array of show people from which to choose. Um, but that that is a sign, sort of a vestigial tribute to their their roots as a as a club that was founded by writers and artists. Now, um, is it true that uh, they tried to expose this uh, this this group, the Bohemian uh, Society, but uh, some journalist is is that a true story? Well, there it's it's happened several times. It's, it's not a one time event. There have been several people who've tried to sneak in or infiltrate the the Grove. Uh, when I was at Spy Magazine, there was a guy at Spy who um, I think succeeded in infiltrating. Usually people disguise themselves as waiters uh, and get in, and, and that's why in, in the picture I made, um, the, the vehicle for the exposure of the secret is in fact a, a waiter who works at the, at the club. Uh, it's just that's, that's the, um, the soft underbelly of the place is the, is the wait staff. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, being that it is uh, it is satire, I mean, are are you really trying to uh, to really expose something, and it's easier to do that through comedy, or is it just just? Well, I mean, I'm not trying to expose. I'm trying to my I my what the kind of comedy I I like comedy that uh, grows out of the way life really is some aspect of of the way life really is as opposed to total fantasy uh fantasy doesn't you know what if uh george bush smoked chronic man does not make me laugh right um kind of a a carefully observed uh slice of real life with the pauses taken out is which make what makes me laugh because we're the funniest thing going us as we really are it's just there are dull parts, and the job I see basically is to just take the dull parts out, just edit it down, just look at it straight, edit it down. So um, it's not a it's not exposure so much as you know I think you just turn your gaze at any part of life and focus on it. Uh, you're going to find funny stuff there, and so this and and satirists. I think the job description involves 
basically turning your gaze more often than not at the people who have the power and the guns and the money. So that's why this group of people is a, I thought was an appropriate subject. What were some challenges that went into making the making the film? Well, first of all, um, it's one thing to say you want to do a digital film. Um, you then have the digital world uh, offers a be- bewildering variety of formats and uh, uh, from which to choose. And uh, so, I literally spent about six months uh, talking to directors who had done the first kind of wave of digital films, uh, picking their brains. And um, the great thing about the independent film world is that people will really be very glad to share with you what they know. Uh, the bad thing about it is a lot of what they know is wrong. <laughs> so you have to kind of sift. Uh, and this was a perfect example because people would say a couple years ago, uh, you know, things change very rapidly in the digital world. But a couple of years ago, people were saying, well, you have to shoot PAL, which is the English uh, video standard, which has more lines on the screen, which gives you more, a a richer image when you convert to 35 millimeter, which is true. All of that is true. But as I started exploring it, I found that something else was true too, which is that for totally arcane technical reasons, when you shoot in PAL and then convert to 35 millimeter film, your film is 4% slower and 4% longer than what you shot. 4% slower? Yeah. Wow. So, so does it drop the voice too? Well, I asked this question of the guy who's the, the world's leading authority on converting digital video to film. And he says, no, no, we have very sophisticated pitch correction uh, and algorithms for making sure. So it doesn't sound like that. But it's slower. And I said, but it's still slower, doesn't it? And he said, yeah, but 4%, the audience doesn't, can't tell that. At which point I realized, okay, these people are not doing comedy. Because in drama, you can get away with that. But Every in, four seconds, for, you've lost your audience. Yeah, well, 4%, go say to George Wendt, do the, do the thing 4% faster because it's going to end up 4% slower and you have to compensate. I mean, it's ludicrous. So we finally, part of the challenge was to find a format that gave us good picture quality and didn't involve that compromise. Um, part of the challenge was getting actors who really wanted to be in the picture but would get like real jobs <laughs> that paid real money. Yeah. You know, so we ended up casting the movie about two and a half times before it stuck because people would go away and then, you know, we'd have to replace them. But I'm really proud of this cast. I think it's a great yeah, cast. Yeah, let's, uh, well, Henry Gibson. Yeah. Amazing. Henry Gibson is amazing. I mean, you have a lot of, I mean, people will recognize a lot of these actors. John Michael Higgins from Best in Show. Yeah. And Howard Hessman. Howard Hessman, who's great. God, he did uh, Quills at the Geffen Theater uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Wow. He's amazing. Fred Willard. Fred Willard. Great Fred Willard. Who's always good. He's funny from a whole other place than anything that I understand. And I've, I've worked with him on stage. I've worked with him in film. As a director, I try to give an actor only what they need, you know, and not try to over, over note them or over guide them. And Fred just basically needs to be told where to stand and where the camera is and when the, when we're going, when, when the take starts. I mean, he's just, he's got his own process that's like comes from within.
Spinal Tap and and all of Chris's movies uh, are have been improvised. Um, this film is not improvised, and for a few reasons, I didn't want to have it be improvised. First of all, that's Chris's style, and uh, I didn't want to be in the position of being next in line after Chris with that style. Um, this is a movie about a secret and the the attempt to keep it secret, and I couldn't for the life of me think of who would therefore be filming a mockumentary about that. Right. So the point of view question eluded me. And then, uh, purely practical standpoint, um, we didn't have time to let people screw around and improvise. We had to really, and I don't mean to be disrespectful by saying screw around, I mean, it just takes time. And uh, we really had a too restricted a schedule both in the shooting and in the editing. Chris takes seven months to edit his pictures. Really? Yeah. It takes a long time to find that stuff and weave it together. And I didn't have that uh, either. So what I did is I said to all these people who, as I say, have fine improvisational chops, you'll think of amazing things to say. Tell me about them beforehand and we'll work them into the script and plan for them. And, and sort of that's what we did. You're going to go to New York to do some uh, publicity for the film? Do Conan and uh, Joan Rivers show. Joan Rivers has a radio show. Who knew? Oh, she does. Yeah, who knew? Okay. Now, when you Without get... Melissa, hopefully. Okay. I just hope, you know, because a two-on-one I'm not prepared for. Oh. So, so, Harry, so... Yeah. So, uh, what is that outfit? Is that, can you tell yeah, us? Yeah, what, what, what were you thinking? Can you tell us? This is a fashion disaster! She used to play the club scene in L.A. Yeah. years ago when oh, yeah. there was a club scene. She was in Second City, I just found out. Wow. That's frightening. Imagine being on stage with, you know, I mean, just the great John Rivers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I'm doing some of that. I'm, uh, when are you going to be on Conan? Thursday night. Oh, this Thursday? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, cool. We'll look yeah. for you. Okay. I'll look for you. So they <laughs> Wave must, when you see They me. do like a big, uh, a big pre-interview, don't they? They'll be about uh, 10, 15 minutes on the phone, yeah, yeah, which I've never understood. But. So that, so you go in there, so it's really, he's just going to rehash the questions he already asked you? or You know, that's the American way of doing television, and um, it's, it's pretty much across the board. Now, I go to Australia sometimes and do this wonderful show, which is sort of a cross between politically incorrect and... Uh, Something funny, and uh, <laughs> yeah, what is this politically incorrect? Well, what do you think? Not enough said, department. And uh, <laughs> these guys take the totally opposite position, which is, will there'll be a little meeting about you know what the show is going to be about and what we won't all want to discuss, and the minute somebody starts getting into it, they say, no, no, save it, save it for the show. So there's a very rigorous kind of, we don't want to hear about it in advance. Right. We want to experience it for the first time for real, spontaneously. So not American. So un-American approach to television. Everybody in American television is nervous, doesn't want to be surprised, doesn't want to have the unexpected happen, wants to know exactly, you know, wants to be Well, that's to... why you see these newscasters, and if there's a real event, oh, they don't know tot- what to do. They well, to t- do. They, their personality changes totally. Like Dan. Dan just goes into hyper-warp personality when it, when there's a real news event as opposed to the thing that he does the acting that he does when he's just reading oh my god that when he's reading the cop he does yeah. something he does a like a, a 30 second or one minute uh commentary mm-hmm. but he does those weird turns of phrase <laughs> what is a cold day in august becomes 
he a hot item. He doesn't write that Next. anymore, does he? Yeah, I think he does. You think I he, think he writes, those? writes that stuff? I don't know. Maybe they, they just know how to write for him. A dog's life hangs on a cat's tail. <laughs> Next. So what about the the Oscars? It seemed like this year there was a really a, a they're big, still going a, on a as I understand hype. it. Whoopi is doing. Uh, Whoopi has finally gotten drunk enough to be funny, and uh, um, I thought the you know there was an interesting quote by somebody at Imagine who said, um, which was the producer of A Beautiful Mind, who said uh, this year we have uh, violated the morality of marketing the Academy referring to all the negative campaigning against the beautiful mind. I wasn't dialed into this. What was this whole negative campaigning? The uh, leaking of um, information to the Drudge Report of um, pieces from the book about John Nash and his his anti-Semitic period, which, of course, coincided with his periods of psychotic delusion. You know, that's the part that Matt Drudge left out. Oh, okay. So there was an attempt to, to scare the members of the academy into thinking why are we voting for this movie about an anti-semite my god so there was you know that's a little ugly uh and the the imagine spokesman went on to say you know we have to rein this in because we really don't want to uh destroy what oscar stands for what does it stand for well you know to me the seminal moment in last night's show was when Whoopi, in one of her misguided comedy moments um commenting on john ashcroft covering up the uh the boobs on the statues at the Justice Department walked over to the statue of Oscar and covered up nothing because Oscar has no genitalia. Yeah. So, like, she, why would you, you know, she didn't get the fact that the joke didn't work because she was covering up something that wasn't there. It had already been airbrushed long before she got there by the Academy itself. So what Oscar stands for, first and foremost, is lack of genitalia. Well, remember, it, it used to be, I mean, I remember the years of, the, you know, the guy, you know, was streaking and then yes. uh, somebody inevitably would do something political. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's gotten safer. I think people are, are aware that um, there's a, a um, an opprobrium that attaches to kind of um, violating the sense of dignity of the motion picture industry, which, of course, is a huge joke. What did you think of Halle Berry? Uh, I like to dress. I liked her dress. I thought, that, you know, great looking. Uh, I would like to have the Halle Berry Kleenex concession. Yeah, but you know what? In some ways, she was actually wasn't. That's what she did in the film. Yeah, what she did with her with her speech. Yeah, I know. It was it was that over the top. Yeah. Well, um, it it'll go in the in the Oscar annals right next in the Sally Field. It is file. exactly. You it know? exactly. She uh, you like me. We saw Sally you Fields really do like it. Like me. So you know now Sally Fields. Won't be alone when they show that clip. You know. Did you have a favorite film? Iris. Iris was good, wasn't it? Yeah. It was amazing that Jim Broadbent won. Yeah, it was amazing. Because it was amazing. he was not really such the popular uh, vote. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I thought that was a, a... And very much the kind of movie that doesn't win Academy Awards. I was I was getting tiresome for my guests, including my wife, in, in, in the living room last night going on about... You know, the kind of acting that wins Academy Awards is, is acting that involves a lot of yelling. Jim Broadbent was, was, by contrast, never raised his voice. Right. Never had 
a histrionic scene just was a guy trying to deal with this horrible thing of his wife disappearing before his eyes. It was it was real acting. Oscar uh, award, awards for acting have a tradition of kind of going up very to a great extent to acting that calls attention to itself, acting with a capital A. And Jim Broadbent was acting with a small A. Uh, I thought that was great. So what's the status of the band now? Um, I'm planning to have them fly into a mountain, but that's just me. Um, now the we did uh, the Greek theater. We did uh, Carnegie Hall last year. Christopher and Michael and I are focusing on a, a, a different musical organization that we're performing as now, a folk trio called the Folksmen. We've been doing them for about 10 years, and as a matter of fact, we opened for TAP last year as the Folksmen. So I think... How did that go over? Because you've got the heavy metal crowd. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because about half the people didn't know and half the people knew. And so you could sort of watch the information filter through the audience. Hey, that's no, that's not. Hey, that's no, that's not. Hey, it is. No, it's not. And you could watch it actually spread. Um, So Christopher's next film um, is going to feature the Folksman and several other folk groups uh, portrayed by his regular cast that have been in you know Best in Show and Guffman um, doing a reunion concert at Carnegie Hall to celebrate the life of, of the guy who managed them all. And uh, we're writing the songs right now. That must are, have been a tough gig for the manager because of the egos. Because of the egos and because of the, uh, the lack of uh, basically attractiveness of the groups. We have been doing these guys as I say almost for uh, for well, more than ten years, on and off. But and you guys really played the instrument. Yes, yes. I, you know, people ask us that all the time, and I, for the life of me, this is going to sound extremely old-fashioned. I can't imagine what's fun about going on a tour, for example, and not playing. Although, of course, look everybody at Mil- de- look at Millie. Look, look at Millie. Well, look at Britney Spears. But um, you know, to me, the 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 whole fun of when we did the tours was it is. Nobody ever said it wasn't fun to get on stage and play dumb music stupidly loud. It's great fun. The The main fun for us is watching the audience. The audience puts on a great show because we're making fun of being a band and being a band at the same time. They're making fun of being a rock audience and being a rock audience at the same time. It's very, very cool. Now, how did you uh, find uh, Derek Smalls? How did I find him? Yeah. He was uh, playing with a... Um, kind of a soul band called Leslie Cheswick's Soul Explosion. And uh, Tap had lost their bass player, Ronnie Pudding, uh, left the band, had a solo career, moved to Namibia and did one solo album called Doesn't Anybody Here Speak English and was never heard from again. And Derek joined the band at that point and uh, has stuck with it ever since. Now he has the, hey, does he still have the, uh, like the big cypher? Same, same facial hair, yeah. He still has that? yeah. Just, he likes that. He never let go of that. The that chicks look. love it. Do they? Oh God, yeah. It's a chi- that that stuff is a chick magnet. If you would like more information about Harry Shearer, visit harryshearer.com. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you center stage. 
Center stage, Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. <laughs>